the following message entitled, Who Will Be the First to Throw a Stone? Part 4 of the series, A Righteousness from God, was given by Joe Ryer on February 23, 2014 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 1. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Joe. Um, This is your first Sunday. Thanks for coming this morning. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Um, One adjustment to an announcement that, um, just a small adjustment, if you're coming to the women's prayer, it's moved to 8 a.m. instead of 7.30. So, 8 a.m. You're welcome, whoever said thank you. (laughs) I know there's some of you that might want it at 10 p.m. too, so... It's inching that way. 8 a.m. next Saturday. Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can just turn to the first chapter. We're going to be reading, begin reading it in a moment. But before we do, I want to, I want to tell you a brief story um, about two brothers. And all of us have grown up in families, and some families were small, some were large. Um, if you have siblings... You know there's just all kinds of different family dynamics that work out in a family. I'm the baby brother, so I, I fit a stereotype in many ways, my sister would say, of the baby brother. Some of you are the oldest responsible ones of your family. Well, the story I want to tell you is about two brothers, and this is when they were, they were growing up. The one brother was highly responsible. Dad loved him. He worked hard. He did his chores without being told. His dad would wake up, look out the window, and he would see his, his son, his eldest son, working in the field at a farm. And he never had to tell him anything. Great son. He had another son, younger son. The younger son wasn't too into chores, wasn't too into work. He wanted to have fun. He wanted to indulge in everything that the world had to offer. He wanted to just go for it. And and he found out, growing up in his family, that, hey, I think my dad might have a bit of money, a bit of cash. He has a big farm, a big estate. I bet he has some money. So the youngest brother came up with an idea. I'm going to ask my dad to give me whatever my inheritance would be when he would die. He'd give it to me early. And then I could just go and indulge and have fun and all the world's pleasures. Well, Surprisingly, he came up with the idea, he asked his dad, and his dad said, here you go. Dad wrote a very large check. The brother took that very large check, he spent every dollar of that check, indulging in all kinds of sinful pleasures. Whatever money could buy, he bought. Well, eventually, he hit rock bottom. He ran out of cash, sinful pleasures had consequences. He ends up working at another farm as a, a servant taking care of pigs and wanting to eat the pig food because he was so hungry. And eventually he realizes that what he did with his dad's money and what he did with his choices in life, they were wrong. And he decided to head home. said, even my dad's hired hands live better than I live right now. So he crawls back home. And to his surprise, when his dad sees him crawling back home, his dad is excited. He throws a big party. He's celebrating that his his son who was lost is now found. But something interesting happened with the other brother. The one that always did work without being told. 
one who never did anything wrong, outwardly speaking, he was angry. He was upset. He was mad at both, both his father and his brother. And if you're familiar with the Bible, that, that's the story Jesus told of the prodigal son. And the question I want us to consider today as we go into Romans is which of the brothers had a problem? Which of the brothers needed to turn from sin? Which of the brothers wasn't okay with their father? The answer is both. So we're going to see in Romans. Both of the brothers were in deep trouble. One knew it, the other did not. And the reason I wanted to start with that story is because we're going to look at a, a letter um, that Paul wrote to the Roman church. And we're going to start in verse 18. And chapter 1 captures really the first brother who indulges in sinful pleasure in many ways. And God has some very strong things to say about that indulgence. But then chapter 2 captures well the second brother who thought he was okay and was actually very proud that he was not like his younger sinful brother. And what we're going to see as these two chapters come together is that all of us, no matter what our pursuits and passions, we're all in need of a Savior and we all stand guilty before God without Christ. So with that in mind, look at Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read a lengthier section, verse 18 through 32, but we're going to hone in on verse 28 to 32, and then the beginning of chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. In other words, through the creation that God has made, we learn some things about God. Verse 20, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Lord, we know that this section of Romans is dense and does not paint human nature in a great light. And Lord, we know that the purpose of it is to lead us to trust in You, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that for every Christian, their dependence and reliance on Your death and resurrection would just grow as a result of this passage. For anyone who doesn't know You yet, I pray You would use this passage in chapter 2 to arrest our attentions, to cry out to You for mercy and to receive mercy from You. Lord, we ask this in Your name for Your glory. Amen. Well, the main idea here in Romans 1, and we'll see in 2, and really through to chapter 3, is that because we're all guilty before God, we need a righteousness that comes from somewhere else, that's not in and of ourselves. And Bob has been spending the last few weeks going through chapter 1 of Romans, and he described, he had a good picture of Romans 1, 2, and really chapter 3, the first half, is like the, the black velvet that you set a diamond on. And the purpose of the black background is so that you can really see the brilliance of the diamond even clearer and it's more incredible. That's what Paul's doing here in these three chapters. He's showing us this black canvas of our human nature. And as we, we see that, it is dark, and it is dense, and it is very black. And when you, when you learn about what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, it makes it all the more brilliant and radiant because we know what our condition is before God by nature. And so that's what Paul is laying out here in the end of chapter 1. In verses 28 through 32, there's a list of 21 sins or expressions of human nature that Paul describes. And I don't know if you played this game when you were young, but when I was growing up, we called it uncle. Some of you might call it mercy. Uh, my daughter's actually very good at it, where you, you lock hands with somebody else and you twist their wrist until they say uncle or mercy. Um, this passage is going to feel a little bit like that. Um, by the 21st uh, description, you might be saying uncle or mercy. But keep in mind, when the Bible talks about sin and our sinfulness, it's not an end in itself. It was never intended to be an end in itself. But it's important to understand our human nature because our sins are sins primarily and, and foremost against God. And we need to know that because if we recognize what the Bible says about the human condition and really believe it, and what it says about God's perfection and holiness. Oh, it makes Jesus and what He had come to do and did on the cross for us, it makes it amazing and incredible. But if you don't understand human nature, we won't appreciate what Jesus has done for us. So Bob, as he, as he went through chapter 1, he described the wrath of God in two ways. In verse 18, it's this wrath of God, present tense, that's being revealed, 
that really is the expression of God's hatred for sin, His anger for sin, but it's a holy anger. It's not like you or I when we get angry sinfully at someone. It's this pure anger and repulsion of sin based on God's character, based on His absolute holiness. And one of the expressions we see in the book of Romans of God's wrath being expressed is He lets us go. He hands us over. And, and Bob had some pictures that he described the wrath. It's like a, um, a piece of fruit that's just filling with juice and it's about to burst. It's just building and building. Or a volcano before it erupts. It just The lava begins to rise and rise and rise. Well, that's what it's like when God just lets us go in our own human nature. In verse 28 through 32, it's just a continuation of that idea. But as we're going to see in chapter 2, there's another expression of God's wrath that we all need to come to grips with. That there, there will be a day when every human being stands before God, before our Maker. And that day is referred to in the Bible as the day of judgment. The day of God's wrath. That, that we're all going to stand before God on that day. And on that day, we will give an account for all of our sins. And we will either be hidden in Jesus and His perfection, or all of our actions from our entire life will be laid bare and we will be punished for them. And so the stakes are high um, in understanding this passage. So let's look at verse 28 through 32 with the idea in mind that God's judgment is being revealed against all ungodliness. just going to read 28 through 32 one more time. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, the they there is all Gentiles, all non-Jewish people in the world. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's not a good thing when God gives us up. And as we'll see, there's a long list of sins. And why this is so important is because we live in a world that lots of people spend lots of money and lots of time and lots of thought trying to figure out what's wrong with the world. So have you ever thought about that? What, what is wrong with the world? Why do people do so many crazy things? Even the Black Eyed Peas ask the question in their song, Where is the Love? What's wrong with the world? And then they have this great description of all the wrong that they see in the world. Well, that's an important question. And how you answer that question is critical. Because if you get the answer wrong, if you think, for example, what's wrong with the world is politics, is government. If you think what's wrong with the world is primarily poverty, or a lack of education, or processed foods, or the public school system, whatever you think is wrong with the world, you want to come up with a solution to solve the world's problems. And so if you think the problem is primarily, let's say in the United States, our government, well then you would pour all your energy, thought, and passion into making our government better. If you think it's education, you will fight the education system. If you think it's food, you will have your own farm in your backyard. None of that is wrong necessarily. But the problem is, it all misses the mark. The Bible is so clear with what is wrong with the world. 
The problem with the world, you ready for this answer? Is you and I. We're what's wrong with the world. Human nature is what is wrong with the world. Now listen to this list of things that, that God has just let us go in. And some of us in, in further degrees than others. And when I read this list, this will help you make sense of the Indiana Gazette when you read the police log. So in Starbucks this morning, apparently there's a pretty large arrest at 1.30 a.m. on Philadelphia Street right in front of one of the bars. The answer to that problem is described here in verses 29 through 32. The answer to every crime that is appalling that we see on the news is found in here and in in chapter 3 as well. So look at verse 29. We're just going to quickly go through this list. And like I said, it may feel like uncle or mercy as we go through it. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. These are big sweeping categories. Filled with unrighteousness. A lack of reverence for God's righteousness, His perfect standard. Filled with evil or malice. Just this this base desire to do wrong. So you know the right, and the desire is to do the opposite. Filled with covetousness and greed. The craving for more and more and more. So this, this would capture like wealthy people committing insider trading crimes. They have a lot of money and they want more. This would capture very successful athletes using performance enhancing drugs to be even more successful. It's just this endless Appetite for more and more and more. Envy. Envy is this, this, this strong displeasure that comes when you see someone else succeeding in a way that you want to succeed. If you're watching the Olympics, um, the Winter Olympics right now, they, they've done flashbacks on the story of Nancy Kerrigan, who was the, the famous Olympic ice skater who um, someone had a, a man attack her and specifically take out her knee so that she could not compete in the Olympics um, a number of years ago. Well, that's... And the, the theory behind it is it was based on envy. That, that is envy full bore. It's, I don't want someone else to succeed. I want myself to succeed. That is Envy. The list goes on. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We get murder. Murder is the culmination of anger that gives full birth. So ten miles away in Pine Grove State Prison, there are murderers. There are young men and some older men who will be there their entire lives for murder. Strife. What does this mean? This means this It's a quarrelsome disposition to fight, to stir up problems. And someone who is given to strife, their whole whole life is is marked by strife and the consequences. So when they come into a room, to a situation, it doesn't get better. It gets stirred up um, even more. It always escalates. Someone given to deceit, they are deceptive. 
They live a life of, of trying to, to, to get around the rules and often get caught in their lies as they go. Someone who is given to malice or maliciousness, they're just mean. They, they, they want people to be harmed. They like people being harmed. It's, it's just a malicious intent for people to get harmed. Paul goes on in verse 30, the end of 29, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. They're gossips. Gossip is one of those sins that the Bible clearly says is sinful. That is like, it's like these chocolate M&M's my, my stepmom brought to our house this weekend. They're, they're just so tasty. So if I said to you, okay guys, did you hear what Bob Mundorf did last night? And I get in closer. There, there's something in all of us that, well I want to hear what Bob Mundorf did last night. Um, and gossip is ruining someone's reputation by whispering about someone. Now, slander isn't this. Did you hear what Bob Mundorf did last night? It's, hey, guess what Bob did last night? Check out my Facebook page. Um, get on Twitter. It's all over the social media world, and I'm going to tell everybody. Well, that's slander. I'm going to drag his name through the mud. If you don't know who Bob is, Bob's one of our pastors. He didn't do anything bad last night. Just um, by way of illustration. But there's gossip and then there's slander. And then he has this phrase, they're, they're haters of God. Well, a hater of God is someone who hates the God that made them. You want nothing to do with the thought of God, the reality of God, the notion that, that somehow God has made you and therefore you need to answer before Him or give an account to Him, you hate it. You, you revolt against it. Paul says, another group, they're, they're insolent. They're, they treat others with contempt or disdain. They, they look down upon others. Then there's a pairing of those who are haughty or arrogant or boastful. One commentator said the, the arrogant, they, they consider themselves supermen. They're the best. And they know they're the best. They love being the best. They're proud about it. And for the height of the arrogant, they're going to tell everybody else how great they are as well. Guess what I can do. And I know other people can do it, but I can do it better. They are just proud about it. And so there's no acknowledgement that even the gifts that they're proud about come from the God who has made them. They're boastful, proud. The next group is those who are inventors of evil. Not only do they delight in evil, but they come up with new ways to do evil. And every generation has a new form of evil and a new way to express it. They're inventors of evil. Now here's one that seems to be a little out of place on Paul's list, but it wasn't a mistake as God the Holy Spirit was telling him what to write, inspiring him to write it, are those who are disobedient to your parents. Wow, where'd that come from? We got murderers, and then we got, Joey, take out the trash. I don't want to. 
Well, that made the list disobedient to parents. It did make the list. In God's Word, children are to obey their parents. And so this is a, a disregard of mom and dad. Uh, the idea, I don't need you. I don't have to listen to you. You can't tell me what to do. And you won't tell me what to do. That's an in-your-face, I'm in charge, and you're not. And parents of toddlers, it, it starts young, doesn't it? <laughs> it comes out early. But disobedient to parents. So the list goes on. They're senseless. Foolish. So they just lack complete understanding. And they're morally responsible for that understanding. They're willfully doing foolish things that they know are wrong. They're faithless. They're, they're not to be trusted. They, if you give them your wallet, they'll take half the money out of your wallet. They're, they're not to be trusted. Then the last two are those who are loveless and ruthless. The, the idea of loveless is there's no natural affection. So if you turn on the news and you, you read about or see a crime that it just seems like there is no heart beating behind that crime. That's the idea in this word. It, it's a heartless, loveless, natural affection for humanity. The compassion is gone. And then, very closely tied is those who are ruthless. People without mercy. They're cruel. They're ruthless. They don't care about us. They don't care about you. Well, what's wrong with the world? Human nature. The Bible calls it sin. That's what's wrong with the world. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and it has been pervasive ever since. And so apart from God's saving grace, we, we have a big problem in the world. Look at verse 32. Though they knew God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. In other words, one of the things that's clear in Romans chapter 1 is that no one, no human being can say, oh, I didn't know I shouldn't have done that. Because there's something in the way God has made us and there's something in the way that God has made the world that we are to know Externally, that God exists as we look at creation, either the vast sky or the, the most microscopic organism, that there is a grand designer behind it. And we're accountable to Him. And then God gives us all a conscience that we have. And as we, as we either obey that conscience or disobey that conscience, we go one way or the other further into sin. But... We are all, the Bible clearly says, without excuse. Now, depending on our background and your upbringing and the things you've done in your life so far, when you, you read most of these things on this list or some of these things, you may have had one or two responses. One might be in the game of uncle, uncle, mercy, I... Let's stop. I heard enough. By the third one, I'm done. I, I don't want to hear anymore. Then, then some of you or some of us might think, well, this wasn't so bad. 
ask my mom and dad. I'm very compliant. I'm, I'm, I'm actually the, the most compliant of all my brothers and sisters. I did pretty good on that list. Well, we're going to talk about you in a moment. But if, if you are on the list of, wow, I, I really am a slave to my sin. I really cannot stop a lot of things that you read, even the things that were higher up in the, the chapter. I, I'm stuck. I have no hope. Here's the good news for you. There's a story in the book of Mark. It talks about Jesus hanging out with some people that did some really bad things. Mark 2, verse 15 through 17. And as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. In other words, Jesus was hanging out with people that had done some terrible things. A tax collector, if you're not familiar with it, they were the people that would come to your house, say, you've got to pay your taxes, you, you give them the money, and as they're walking away, they're taking half that money and sliding it in their pocket. They're, they're robbing everybody. Nobody liked tax collectors. Elsewhere, Jesus is hanging out with prostitutes. In all walks of life, particularly the low side of life, the, the criminals, those who have done some terrible things. In verse 16 of this, this account says, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that, that He, Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When was the last time you went to the doctor because you felt great? Hey doctor, I just wanted to see you. I, I feel awesome. I'm doing great. I'm exercising. I'm losing weight. Um, I just want to meet with you and let you know. You would never do that. The point that Jesus is making here is He came for those who recognize their sickness, their sinfulness, their need to be forgiven and freed of their sin. The Pharisees weren't righteous like they thought, and we're going to see that in a moment. But Jesus is saying, there's great hope for any man, woman, child who sees themselves as a sinner before a holy God in a, in a great predicament, in a very difficult spot. Because when they run to Jesus, He forgives them of all their sins. So if you have, up to this point, just indulged and lived a life of sin and sinful pursuits, and you don't know how to stop, and you don't know how to get out, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer. And this room, there are many of us who were once in that state, enslaved to all kinds of sins, and we have been freed by Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the hope of the Gospel. That we bring our many sins to Jesus. And He cleans us up. He forgives us. He gives us power by the Holy Spirit to to be freed from those sinful pursuits. And that's exactly what happened to the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. He came to a census. He realized his sins were against God Himself, against His Father. And He turned, He repented, and He was welcomed in. But if you remember at the beginning of that story, I told you that older brother, big brother, was not buying it. He was not rejoicing. He wasn't excited to have the party. He wasn't serving any longer. In fact, in the account, it says this, It says, verse 28 of Luke 15, it says, but, but he was angry. The brother's angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, tried to talk to him. But he answered, he said, Dad, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my sons. But this son of yours came home. He devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed a fattened calf. Oh, this, this brother was mad. He was angry at his little brother. And now he was angry at his father. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the temptations that was happening in the church of Rome and can happen in our church and every other church is for the, the Jewish people who are very moral who could trace their their family tree back to Abraham himself, who had never indulged in all these sinful practices of the Romans, they often were tempted to trust in their goodness, to trust in their morality, to trust in their religious heritage. And so what Paul's going to do, and and what is our last point, he's going to turn the tables on those who have never committed a crime, maybe never sinned, sexually, who had never used a drug in their life. And he wants them to know, you too are in trouble. So the second point is God's judgment is being revealed against the self-righteous, religious, moralist. Look at chapter 2. So Paul just went through this 21 things that are sinful expressions of humanity. And the picture you're going to get is the, this fictitious Jewish moralist that he has in mind that might represent many in the church and, and many in, in our church. It's that as this big list of sins and crimes is being, being revealed, the religious moralist who's very confident in his own character, or her own character, is saying, looking down at the, the murderer, and the sexually immoral and say, oh, that's so disgusting. That is so repulsive. I would never, ever, ever do that. I can't believe people do those kind of things. Their concern isn't God's standard. Their concern is their standard. And as they compare themselves to other people, they feel really good about themselves. They feel really proud about themselves. And so in in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore... You have no excuse, O man, 
every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What Paul's doing here, he's using a technique that was very popular in his day. When he says, therefore you have no excuse. That's a singular you. It's a, it's a sort of a fictitious person that he's imagining. This, this person we'll call the religious moralist who's very confident of their character and very confident of their heritage. He's saying, you, you've got to be careful. Saying, be careful. You have no excuse. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So in other words, what Paul's doing, he's beginning to interrogate them. He's saying, have you perfectly kept the law? Have you never gotten angry? Ever? One of the things that that Jesus made very clear when He was on earth is if you are angry in your heart in a sinful way, it's the same root sin as murder. And Paul's saying, have you never gotten angry? Have you never had an evil thought as you're driving down the road or you're thinking about your boss or you're thinking about somebody that works with you? Have you never lusted in your heart? Do you really think you will escape the judgment of God? The reason Paul's doing this is because most likely in the church there were those who were tempted rather than trusting in Jesus as their substitute for their sins. It shifted. Their trust was in their Jewish heritage and their trust was in their goodness. It's not wrong to be good. We want neighbors who don't do crimes, right? We, we like that. I like that my neighbors don't steal the stuff out of my yard. Um, but the danger is, compared to God's law, His perfect standard, we're all in trouble. All of us, apart from Christ. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. God's standard is absolute perfection. And so you might remember in the Bible there's a story of a, a woman who was, who was caught in adultery. She had committed adultery. She had broken her marriage covenant. And the Jewish men at the time were, were ready to throw rocks at her and stone her to death. Hold her to the standard. And Jesus said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And what happened? They one by one walked away because they knew they all had sinned in various ways, various kinds, maybe not in the same way. Jesus didn't give her a free pass though. He said, go and sin no more. And He brought life to her. That's what Jesus does. The idea in Romans 2 here is this critical, sinful, self-righteous judgment. It's putting ourselves above others. And this is a real temptation 
I think, for, for Christians or for churchgoers. For those who, since birth, have been holding a Bible, reading a Bible, knowing about the Bible, singing songs about God, that's all good. And Paul's going to tell us that later in chapter 2. That is good. But what that can do is it creates a subtle temptation that as you watch the news or you go to school or you hear of bad things that people do, you think you're in a totally different category, a totally different class. And you're not. You have the same human nature. You need the same Savior. Now, in degrees, you're different. It is different that I got angry and I didn't kill someone. That is different. But before God, I still broke His law. And what Paul's getting at here in Romans 2 is he wants all of us to trust in Jesus. All of us to not be confident in our own behavior or our own character. And so, he tells us not to be critical, not to judge. doesn't mean that it's wrong to say to someone who's living a life of sin that it's wrong. It is right to do that in the right attitude. Because this is God's Word. And you say, God says not to live that way. There's a God who made you. You need to answer before Him. Or if you're a follower of Christ, God has very specific things to say to you about what to do and not to do. And you can tell somebody that. Not in a self-righteous way, but in a very loving way. But you're doing that not to puff yourself up, not to be critical. You're doing out of love for God and love for others. The point is, our confidence before God is always based on what Jesus has done. Jesus was absolutely perfect. Never sinned in any way. He died, took our punishment. We trust in Him. He rose from the dead. And that's our hope. That's my hope. And as Christians, that's our hope. But I know the longer I get away from my sinful lifestyle, as the years pass by, there can be a subtle temptation as a Christian to start shifting to, well, I don't do those things anymore. And my confidence before God might, might shift to my behavior rather than what Christ has done. Our resting place where all our joy is going to come is solely found in what Christ has done for us. That's true the day I met Jesus in 1996. That will be true the day I go to be with Jesus whenever that day comes. It should be no different. We have a Savior and a substitute. And that, that's where Paul's aiming here. And just for time's sake, I'm not, not going to go through um, the next few verses in two. We're going to pick it up next week. But I wanted to close with a parable that Jesus told that, that drives home the idea and the contrast between Romans 1 and 2 so, so firmly and so strongly. This is found in Luke 18, if you want to make a note. And this is the point of Romans 1.18 through 3.20. It's this. Jesus told a parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's how the parable goes. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee, religious leader, tax collector, thief. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank You that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I have. So that, that's the self-righteous. That's the one who trusts in himself. But listen to the tax collector. And this is how we should approach God. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he could say. God, I've sinned against you greatly. Show me mercy. That's what we're doing when we go to Jesus initially for salvation. And it's what we do every moment when we, when we go to Jesus. God, You are so merciful. You have given me Jesus as my righteousness, my substitute, my Savior. And Jesus said this, I tell you, this man, tax collector, went down to his house justified, declared righteous by God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is the righteousness that God provides for every one of us. And we need to respond to Him. Let's pray and the band can come up. Father, You love us so much. You love us so much You don't want us to trust in ourselves and hope in ourselves and hope in our performance. But You love us so much You sent Jesus to be our perfection. To live perfectly. To clothe us with His righteousness. And Lord, I pray for every Christian that You would just give us great confidence in our position before You today because of what You have done for us, Jesus. You love us so much. You are so committed to us. And Lord, for those who have not yet trusted, Lord, open their eyes wide. Give them faith to to run to You today and experience joy, forgiveness, and mercy. Lord, we pray all this for Your glory and honor. And we ask this in Your name. Amen.